This is Pink Noise. Today I have an interview with poet and illustrator Lauren Haldeman. I love Lauren's poetry. She's really playful with her use of language and structure, and I really recommend the poems as something to stare at and ponder over and kind of rewire your brain, which is something I've been appreciating lately. Her poetry deals with life, which for her includes the murder of her brother, Ryan, who was a close friend of mine, and the death of her father, and the birth of her child, and a lot more. We had a lot to talk about, and we had a really wide-ranging conversation. First we'll hear a poem from Lauren, and then we'll get into the interview. I saw your book and I was jealous. I ate your eggs and I was jealous. You told me about your family, how they rented a houseboat, how they fought. I was jealous of the houseboat. I was jealous of your abilities in gift giving when you gave me a gift. I was jealous of your sunglasses. I was jealous of your armature, your raspberries, your beach umbrella. I was jealous of your kindness when you said it was okay to be jealous. I was jealous almost all day long through the mid-afternoon storm as the assemblage in the yard went all citrus and cardinal. The only time I wasn't jealous, I was napping. I I reached out to you because I feel like both of us are in search of distractions from all the craziness that's happening in the world. And yet, um, I think both of what we're trying to do through our work is grapple with the same stuff that we're also trying to get away from. Yeah. A bit. Um, yeah, it's like the only way I can process it is by going directly towards it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I am curious about your, what you've been doing lately with your comics. Do you call them comics? Yeah, I think I call them comics. Um, They're, you know, single panel comics, but sometimes they feel like a little poem. Other times they feel like a tweet that's been, you know, drawn. So. I was thinking about those comics and I was remembering that you had been working in the past on similar drawings that were based on playing soccer uh, at Manassas Battlefields. Yeah. Uh, And you started through that, you were kind of touching on like Civil War ghost stories and things like that. And uh, is there a through line from that idea to what you're what you've been doing lately? Well, I finished that manuscript um, last year, maybe, maybe fall of last year. And by last year, I mean, 2019. And, um, I generally don't do well without like a project. And so I was trying to figure out, all right, what's the next thing? Do I, do I work on like a full graphic novel? Cause the manuscript about soccer is called team photograph and it's a uh, part poetry, part graphic novel. And then the pandemic hit and um, everything just sort of ground to a halt. And 
I was just in the mode for the first couple weeks of the pandemic of just real OCD style um, researching, cleaning, sanitizing. Uh, my obsessive compulsive disorder was like um, having a field day. It was so, so excited for a global pandemic. And so I needed something to break out of that because my days were really just rudderless worry cycles. And so one day I was um, chopping up some garlic to make like a crazy immunity smoothie and had the thought like, oh, like I never noticed this before. Like garlic is just in these single serving packets. Like it's, you know, like it came naturally like the way that something would come to like in, through food service. And I thought I should uh, tweet that. And then I thought, no, because my tweets like don't get any traction and they don't, it doesn't feel like enough. Part of one of my previous books, poetry, I was, I had sort of woven together a bunch of tweets that were of things Ellie had said as a kid, but um, I thought I'll just draw it real simply and I'll see how that goes. And so I drew it and I had been drawing all my characters having wolf heads for a while um, because Ryan loved wolves, you know, and I, and I loved wolves then through Ryan uh, and my brother to, to other listeners, I guess that Jeff knew too. And uh, so I had been drawing him with a wolf head and then I was like, well, I'm good at drawing wolf heads and I stink at drawing like human faces. Like I'm just really bad at the nose and the chin. Like I just cannot get it right, but I'm really good at wolf heads. And so I just started all the characters in that manuscript team photograph have wolf heads. Everything I draw now is wolf heads. And so I drew a wolf head character just looking at breaking up garlic and having this thought and posted it. And people seemed to like seeing it and I liked drawing it. I, it was one of the first times at the beginning of the pandemic where I had noticed for maybe an hour or so, I hadn't been thinking about the virus. Uh, it was a nice break. And so the next day I tried to do it again. I thought, what's another weird thought that I've had. And I started noticing I was thinking about other things other than the virus because I was thinking about possible comics and then I was writing them those thoughts down and then I was drawing them and I think now I'm up to maybe 150 close to 200 of these comics uh, when you were mentioning resonating a lot with drawing wolves and also yeah. the kind of like the inspiration that comes from motherhood um, one of the themes that struck me when I was looking through Calendae um, was there's a particular poem and I wonder if I could ask you to read it um, do you have oh, yeah. Uh, but man, I do not have a copy of Calm Day right now. Okay. <laughs> like in my house. Maybe I'll read it. Do you want to read it? Yeah, let me. That's crazy. I should actually get I should get a copy of my book. <laughs> I used to have one for readings and then it, it must have it just ran away. <laughs> Maybe so. you can order one from the publisher. <laughs> yeah, I need to order my own book. <laughs> There was uh, this, let's see, this is um, 
one of the poems that I guess it has a date instead of a title. It's um, 516. So I'll read it. Child, you tried to French kiss our cat today, and it was disgusting. I want to cry out on the way home from the store. A calendar could have told me the multiple wheels have aligned for the feeling of trapped lion inside me. Motherhood is zoology, the hut of smells, the paw closeness, it fur, it teeth, it dirt. A chapter of your face pasted hard on the chapter of mine. Motherhood written as mortar and wood. The sparkling mishmash ball of all feeling, the static electric of feeling things. I'm trying to picture how you will look instead of seeing how you look now. You look like you will. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I was like so sleep deprived. <laughs> I was writing those poems. Yeah, that describes exactly my experience trying to raise an infant. Uh, I, I mean, so many of the, those things actually happened. Like she put her mouth on the cat's mouth. <laughs> I was like, what? And uh, I would, I'd be like driving home from the store and just feel like screaming, just feeling so much overwhelm. And my experience of early motherhood was very difficult. And, and also what made it even more difficult was that it didn't align with what society, I guess, had been saying for so long, what I should feel about early motherhood, which is like joy and constant happiness of you and your baby and so the difficulty of it plus the discord from the expected reality was absolutely vicious to me so and then yeah feeling things like I don't know if it was my hormones or what but just all it was just all feeling all day long like just so many, like being like just a raw nerve of emotion. And then you have this like infant who's almost literally a raw nerve of emotion. So, and everything stinks. I mean, stinks like a zoo. So, <laughs> but now she's thin. She's watching My Little Pony like on repeat and she makes her own bagels for lunch and tells me to get out of her room. So. Wow, I noticed that you you one of your comics was celebrating ten years of sobriety was was pregnancy basically your reason for giving yeah. up drinking. I was I was sober through my pregnancy and then I tried to drink um, a couple times after I had Ellie and just realized very quickly that it wasn't gonna work. Uh, like, you know, either I was gonna be a drunk mom or not. Um, that. And, and that was a defining point for me. I, you know, I had a feeling that I had an issue with alcohol before having a baby, but then the idea of, of putting someone else through that, uh, just was terrifying enough that I, I quit. Uh, and I, you know, because I, I knew what it felt like to be a kid in a household where, where an adult's behavior was sort of erratic and uncertain. And I didn't, I didn't want my kid to feel that. And that's kind of what you get with alcoholism. So, so yeah, I quit and it was probably like a terrible time to quit when you first have a baby and everything's in upheaval. It was, it was definitely like one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I'm so glad I did it. I'm just, 
so glad I'm sober, you know. I, and so many things that happened since then, uh, I, I, I may not have made it out alive if I hadn't been sober. Do you know what I mean? So the way I was drinking. Mm-hmm. I should back up. And, um, well, so, you, I mean, you mentioned your brother, which I haven't brought up yet. It's, um, but it's a major subject of your work and it's a major source of, you know, a, our connection, you and I, um, yeah. and it's a tough one. So, um, yeah. but basically to give a brief, you know, to get, let people who are going to listen to this know what the situation is, is that, you know, Ryan, who was your brother and a close friend of mine died in an extremely tragic and tariff like just um violent very violent way yeah yeah um and so Uh, yeah i don't know in 2012 yeah november 2nd 2012 so uh yeah he was walking home from a bar uh late at night in denver and was stabbed to death basically so and that is an intense way for someone you love to die, you know? So I did a lot of, uh, process. I've done just a ton of processing. Uh, Cause not only are you like dealing with the fact that he's gone, but you're also trying to really grasp how he went, you know, which seems like a, an entirely other story that you're also going to have to figure out. So, um, so it, for me, writing became one of the major tools of figuring that out before drawing did. Um, I think because writing was way more like of a direct way to process. I needed my brain to like understand the story. Um, in the same way that people experience trauma, like it's good for them to repeat the story over and over because you're, you're just sort of processing what happened. And so that's sort of what I was doing with writing the poetry and uh, just trying to process the event. And it helped. I mean, it really, it helped because now I can say that I can say, you know, here's the date he died. Here's how he died. And I can do it without, you know, crying or uh, breaking down, you know, most of the time. But I mean, it took a long while to get to that point. Um, so, but I think you have to get to that point to be able to uh, feel joy again. Like I'm able to remember him with joy now, which is like the best thing I could imagine. I, 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 hadn't, I didn't imagine that would be possible, you know, after it happened. So, yeah, I mean, that's been a major event in our lives, you know, you and me, you know, it's, it's life changing for sure. Lose someone like that. So. Yeah. And I think that like death and grief are of course, major, uh, cultural themes of the moment. Um, and yet there's, there's something that makes sense about uh, dying of illness that doesn't make sense with like right. the way that Ryan died and yeah, um, 
I remember I was at the doctor. Um, I had switched doctors and uh, I was worried, you know, my, I, my dad passed like two and a half years after Ryan. And I was worried about, I had gone in saying I was worried about colon cancer because that's what he died from. And they, you know, it was a new doctor. So they made me list, you know, my family members and uh, alive or deceased. And then, and so, and then they, you know, if it was deceased, they, this nurse was having me tell the reason, purely medical. And I just, fuck, I just like lost it in the, in the doctor's office with Ellie. And, uh, you know, I had been saying it at like readings. I'd told my friends, I'd, I, you know, I've, I've gotten really good at saying the sentences that describe what happened. But for some reason, being in that medical environment where it was like a more like cold, sort of like data driven thing, ugh, I just lost it just right in front of her. And, but then, you know, especially this quarantine at the beginning of it, I was thinking about Ryan a lot because I was like, this is, he's near. Uh, you know, I feel Ryan's presence a lot. I really do. I feel my dad's presence too. I, and I, before I lost close family members, I would never have imagined that as being a possibility. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I felt them near, very near. Um, it felt like the veil, you know, dividing us was very thin. And I was doing pretty well till like halfway through summer, sort of when I think we're all just getting so emotionally drained. And I just started having like kind of panic attacks and crying a lot and breakdowns. And so many of the times where I would be crying, having panic attacks, I was pulling back the layers of what I was worried about, what I was angry about and what I was scared about. And almost every single time when I got to that final Colonel, it was Ryan, it was missing Ryan. And once I got there, I could just, just really weep and really miss him. And then once I did that, I, I usually felt better. I usually pulled out of it, but it, it definitely is, uh, re-triggering a lot of grief, you know? And I think it's happening to like everyone. So but I'm not necessarily sure it's a bad thing. I mean, I, I think these are lessons we need to learn as a society and as individuals and how to handle death and not be afraid of these feelings and how to grieve and process grief. I think we've have stifled that very natural and healthy process of grief. And it really fucks people up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you don't know how to grieve, it just, it twists you. Yep. So I'm hoping we're learning to how to grieve as a society. It's a great question about how, how do you learn it? Like, where do you learn it and who teaches you? Like the yeah. other day I was thinking about being at my grandmother's funeral and something that my uncle read, like really resonated with me. And I was like, I'm going to lose it. And I like, I left the room to go like cry alone in the hallway. And like my sister yeah. came out to hug me, which was great. And I appreciated that so much. But when I look back on that moment, I'm like, the time to grieve was there together with my family, you know, <laughs> not to be ashamed and to run away from those feelings. And um, yeah. it never we've occurred to me until recently that that was strange. Yeah, we've been trained as children to not grieve. 
you know, we've been told not to cry, that everything's okay. We've been, we've been told to toughen up. I mean, children are great grievers. We're born, we're born with this knowledge and then we're taught out of it. Uh, oftentimes with shame. Um, and I'm really trying to, to raise my child to, to, to grieve, <laughs> uh, to feel all the feelings. She doesn't get candy at the store she wants. Yeah, that sucks. Grieve it, you know? Maybe grieve it in our car and not in public, but I'm not going to shut that down. You didn't get what you wanted, you know? And what, and what I've noticed with my kid is when I let her scream and cry and uh, get upset, um, she processes that she goes all the way through it. It's way shorter of an event than if I try to shut it down. If I try to shut it down, we're in an hour long, you know, tantrum. But if I let her grieve it, 10 minutes, we're done. So, yeah, I went, you know, I mean, that's not your fault we, that you were trained to leave the room to cry. Yeah. But it's man, it's so healing to cry with other people too. just fucking lose it in front of people. I mean, it's just so healing and opening and then those people know that they can feel too. I mean, it's like it, it, you're just all teaching each other. So I, I, I would love for our society to get there. Days I accept the bed as cold anchor. Days I accept the moving fur of the room. Days full of filth accepted. Days of gunk, days like holding the Google Street Maps figure squirming over land, not letting it go. Days where I actually do this at work, hold the Google Street Maps figure over the place where you died. I find the exact street in Denver and hold the little figure above it. I feel sick to be here even just in street view, but I do it because it seems like being close to you. Because a picture of this place is also a picture of you. I'm here with my guest, Lauren Haldeman, who is an illustrator and a poet and the author of Calendae and Instead of Dying. And something I was thinking about during the break was that I think Ryan and I had some things in common and a lot that we didn't have in common. Um, but one thing is I think that we were kind of like dreamers and a little bit adventurers. And um, we both thought of ourselves as musicians, though we didn't make a lot of music. And we thought of ourselves as like, songwriters who didn't write a ton of songs but um right now i feel like i'm getting to a point in my life where i can start to look back at the life experience i've had and and start you know processing it and using it for my work and you know and then the question that comes to mind with ryan is like what what was he gonna do you know i think i it's something that i wondered about while he was alive and yeah now that he's gone it's something that i still wonder about and I think that some of your poems in Instead of Dying deal with that and that they're really, 
beautiful and imaginative, imaginative, and some of them strike me as extremely plausible. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So I wondered how much um, you want, you, how much of of that writing was an exercise for you in um, really trying to engage with uh, a realistic future that he might have had, or how much of it was, you know, just playful or a fantasy, or what do you think? I mean, I think it was half and half. The the way those started was I, you know, and I think this is true of a lot of grief, especially the first few months afterwards, is your brain really hasn't caught up to the new reality. And so, you know, I'd go out and get go- groceries and I'd, I'd be coming home and bringing them into the house and I'd be having these thoughts like, Ryan should move here, you know, and we'll maybe fix up that back basement room and the bedroom and he, you know, he can live there and, and, you know, I'll get, I'll find him a job in Iowa city and like this narrative. And, and all of a sudden this voice would drop, pop into my head and he's dead, you know? And, uh, when that would happen, it was incredibly painful. It was like, um, hearing the news for the first time. And I knew that, that I couldn't, that something needed to change, you know? And so I, I actually wrote down one of these little fantasies and I wrote, instead of dying, you move into the basement. And I, I wrote out sort of a really short fantasy of him living in Iowa city and having a life here. And, uh, when I wrote it down, I didn't really, I didn't have any plans for it, but then I noticed that that, that particular story stopped happening in my head. Um, something about writing it down um, took away that, not the story necessarily, but the shock. Um, it resolved that loop that it was happening a lot. And so I thought, well, why don't I write a few more of these? Why don't I make, you know, one time we were driving from my other brother's house, James's house, and there was like, um, a, f- a car ferry that we had to take across the Potomac and the gas station right next to the f- car ferry had like lo- what looked like apartments above it. And I thought, what if Ryan lived there? What if he moved in there and worked for the ferry? And that one, you uh, didn't necessarily make it into the book, but after that second thought, I thought, okay, I'm going to start writing a bunch of these down. I'm going to make some of them really plausible. I'll make some of them like ridiculous. I'll make some of them like total fantasies that Ryan would love. And then I'll make some of them my own fantasies and some of them really um, wishes I had for him and others kind of, um, I love the book invisible cities by Italo Calvino. I don't know if you've read that, but it's like this descriptions, all the same description of Venice, but some of them are, are just so incredibly magical. And I thought I'll just make some, of his life magical. Um, and then, so I ended up writing, I think probably 20 of those. And, uh, later when I looked back on it, it really helped my mind synchronize up with reality because they were just fantasies. You know, I, I knew that he wasn't, I knew he was dead and I got to, the other thing is that it allowed me to spend a little bit more time with him. And that's, that's really one of the main parts of grief is that you just, 
you realize you're not going to be able to spend any more time with them. And, you know, writing these stories were a way to spend time with them. Now I've gotten to a point where I do feel Ryan's presence and I don't know what that is, but um, I feel a lot closer to him now than I really have maybe even than I did when he was embodied, you know? Uh, and I don't know how to explain that. And I don't have a spiritual theory for that. And it doesn't align with, you know, I'm not, I don't align with any religion either, but I definitely can feel that. So, but at the beginning, those were those, writing those instead of dying paragraphs were really great tools in the end. Instead of dying, you simply choose to stop moving your body. You decide to occupy alternate structures of metaphysical space instead. And we, at first, are understandably confused. One night, you take the form of rainbow dots scattered and sparkling on our ceiling. You seem to be able to be everywhere at once. After a while, we don't know what to do with your body, which is still breathing beneath a willow tree near the goodwill. You become more and more elusive, sublime. At one point, in the final days before you enter some undetectable sphere and completely disappear, you attempt to show me a section of multidimensional activity. Watch how all the realities intermingle, you say. Look at the way they merge and coalesce. But it is too much for me. My own embodiment isn't ready. After he died, when I was writing, trying to finish up Calendar, I went up to this retreat center in Hiawatha uh, near Iowa City and it was we were in a drought so this retreat center is on a, just a little bit of land that has a stream going through it in the woods and I was up there kind of alone and trying to write this book and it, as soon as I got up there it was the first time I had been alone without my daughter since Ryan died and um and I just lost it. I just was crying so much. I couldn't stop. And then I went for a walk in the woods and I was saying to myself, I just wish I could see you one more time. I just wish I could see you. And it's just to say goodbye. I didn't get to say goodbye. I mean, that's so sad to me. I just wish you could walk out of the woods, you know, and I could say goodbye and hug you and you could, and then you would go. And I went down to the stream and it was bone dry and I'm just standing there thinking about this. And I see like this weird, like kind of like drop of water or something. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Is that out of like someone's water bottle? And it's like moving, almost like a worm. And I look and it's like, it's water. So then I'm like watching it. And it's, it's a single drop of water. And it's moving through this bed of this dry bed. And I stood there for probably two, almost, almost three hours, and I watched this uh, stream bed fill with water. And <laughs> there were points in it, and there were points where I was like, 
what is happening? Like it was, I was there for the exact moment when rainfall from the North had finally made its way down and it was slow, a slow process of the, of this drop of water pushing through seriously like sand. And by the time I left, the bed was full of water, like flowing water. And I had, you know, and I had just asked to, to see him again. Wow. I mean, there are a bunch of times where I asked for help. I'm asking Ryan. You know, I never knew how to pray before. And now I just pray directly to Ryan or my dad or my ancestors. I never thought about doing that before, but now. I so. wanted to ask you about, like, these themes that are connected but but different that you, you write about. Um which I kind of think about as when you're describing life, it makes me the way you the way you write about life makes me think that you view it as uh, as that life is not it's not like a lifetime that you are pondering and it's not like a series of events, but it's more like an animating force. The way you yeah. you treat life in your writing, and when you ponder the universe, oftentimes you'll like you'll mention the universe or you'll mention like computers or you'll mention electricities and you'll draw comparisons between people and computers. Like you refer to a baby as a, as a giant crying computer. Um, yeah. And so sometimes, yeah, when I'm reading your poetry, I, I get this strong like imagery of animating life force and consciousness. And yeah, yeah, I guess I'd just love to hear you say more about that. Cause I find it really fascinating. I mean, I think my ideas are like constantly evolving um, so where I was with my ideas when I wrote those poems is, is not, is, has been evolved since then. But I think I am almost like a spiritual scientist or like I find spirituality in science. Um, and I don't know if I'm just imagining it or not, but like when I read about like how light is either a particle or a wave, depending on whether or not it's being observed. Like that's spiritual to me. <laughs> um, and the idea of observation, um, alternate altering things is spiritual to me. And, um, you know, I think we're in, in bodies, like we're embodied, you know, we, and so we have like cells in genes and, we have we're we're in substance right now, and I think there are a lot of rules that apply to substance that we think is everything, but it's only because we're in substance right now. And so, like when Ryan died, like his body stopped working, and that's all we know. That's those are the only facts we we have right here in our in embodiment in in, in the material world is that one moment his body was working and the next it wasn't. And so I take like, that like gives me solace because I like the idea that, that there's so much more we don't know. And there's so much more we're like still discovering. And uh, it's not the word. I don't think the word is faith. I think the word is, uh, like mystery or something like I like that it's a mystery 
I don't know, but the writing about it all helps. I it helps me kind of try to blow my own mind, I guess, or try not to freak out constantly. So it's I guess I guess I'm trying to write my own form of my own idea of spirituality, but it keeps coming back to not knowing. So it's not a great manifesto. Well, thanks for talking, Lauren. Oh, man. Thank you. And it's good talking about Ryan with you, too. For sure. Yeah, I like it. So let's talk again soon. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, with that, even without a podcast. Sure. (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. I'll put links to Lauren's work in the show notes. Her comics are on Instagram at Lauren Haldeman, and you can find her books of poetry on her website, laurenhaldeman.com. When Lauren was reciting her poems, she had a really interesting YouTube channel playing in the background that combines music from the 1920s and 30s with some other ambient sounds. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. It's worth checking out. So that's it for now. Thanks for listening.